good evening, church family. Welcome to Wednesday night worship. We're so glad you're joining us. Um, if you've been a part of our Wednesday night worship recently, you would know that we are right now currently going through the book Counterculture by David Platt. Uh, if you've been able to attend those services, you know that that study is primarily conversational. It's a time we get together and like to discuss things. It's really discussion-based. Uh, and so we are going to put a pause on that study, which means you, A, have plenty of time to do your homework from the last time we met, and B, will not miss a thing uh, with being able to converse and hear from one another during the midst of that study. Instead, what we're doing is we are uh, now going to present you with what we were going to start on Sunday nights, which is our study through um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in a sermon series entitled Resurrection Hope. Uh, and so we're so glad you're here. Um, once this is, is finished, once we're uh, hopefully soon over this pandemic coronavirus stuff, junk as I call it, uh, we'll go back to pushing this series on Sunday night and restarting counterculture on Wednesday night. Hopefully that made some sort of remnant of sense. Um, but regardless, let's go ahead and jump right into the study. One more thing though, as you notice, we're in our fellowship hall room that we're looking forward uh, to, to joining together. And remember, we started this wanting to be more intimate with one another uh, in this very small room or much smaller room. Uh, but now because of coronavirus, we, uh, we don't necessarily want to be as intimate. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, let's walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we're going to start and read through verses 1 through 5. I'm really excited about this series, especially as it leads into the Easter season, and I hope you are as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, five verses, here's what they say. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas then, to the twelve. Church family, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the gospel that Paul is making known and that you have made known into the hearts of your children. Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to this gospel, knowing that it is our only hope, knowing, um, Father, that you have given us this gospel and you are holding us and causing us to stand Lord, we have wonderful things to see in your word. Help us by your spirit to see them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, anytime you dive right in and examine one chapter in a book that has 16 chapters, especially when you start with chapter 15, it's important to examine the context and especially what has come before this particular chapter. There is much to learn and much that Paul writes to this very young church at Corinth. The Lord, uh, through Paul, he warns us about things like prideful divisions, uh, unchecked immorality, and disorder in corporate worship. Uh, he instructs his audience on things like marriage and on the proper use of Christian liberty. Uh, he encourages the church to do all things to the honor and glory of Christ 
Jesus. But as the heart of this very letter, at the heart of this, uh, really the heart of Paul's ministry, is the good news about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, the gospel is the very glue that holds all of Paul's uh, rebukes, his admonitions, his exhortations together. Uh, the gospel of God's salvation for sinners through Jesus Christ is pervasive. It anchors all of Paul's answers and responses to the store of grace that is found in Christ Jesus. In fact, it is this gospel that Paul uh, makes known to us in our passage tonight. This same gospel that he has used to address so many issues in the book of 1 Corinthians. In our text this evening, Paul is preparing to address another issue. The issue of the denial of the resurrection of the dead. Some among the Corinthian church were denying the bodily resurrection of the dead. So Paul, of course, is going to clearly and adamantly teach that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Therefore, we also will be raised from the dead. In fact, the gospel is that, that Christ, the Son of God, having uh, become man, having lived a perfect life for us, also died for our sins, was buried, was raised from the dead, and appeared in bodily form. This is the gospel that Paul had proclaimed to them. This is the gospel that he preached to them, and this is the gospel he makes known again. This is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel that they've received, in which they have stood, and in which or by which they are being saved. So Paul is going to eventually argue that to deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of Christ, and to deny the resurrection of Christ is to deny the gospel itself. For this reason, in our text this evening, the big idea, the main point of the first two verses, which is what we're going to look at, is this. Paul makes known the gospel again that the Corinthians and all Christians might hold fast to it. I'll say that one more time. Paul makes known the gospel again that the Corinthians and all Christians might hold fast to it. So with that in mind, let's dive right into our text. Again, just look at the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 15 tonight. Paul begins in this way. He says, now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Uh, now, the, the King James Version says, I declare to you. Paul is declaring again. He is making known again that which he has already made known, the gospel he preached to the church at Corinth. Now, before we move on to this, uh, the next portion of the text and really dive deep into this, I want to just uh, focus on that phrase, make known. Paul makes known and has made known uh, the gospel. And I want to understand that phrase really in the greater context of 1 Corinthians and, and even more so in the greater context of all of Paul's ministry. And when we do that, I think we see four things about Paul making known the gospel in his ministry. The first is this. Uh, Paul makes known the gospel because it was Paul's purpose. This was Paul's purpose in life. To make known the gospel. It was the very reason he ended up in the city of Corinth in the first place. To make known the gospel. Uh, from the outset of this letter to the Corinthians, Paul makes it clear. This is his purpose. To proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ. He saw it as his ultimate goal. That's why he writes in the first chapter, verse 17. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Then in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, in verse 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ in him crucified. In fact, even in chapter 15, he's going to explain that he worked harder than all the others. Of course, with the caveat of God's grace in him, that he worked harder than all the others to proclaim this gospel. The gospel that he preached. And the gospel that they, the Corinthians, had believed. And so we see that this was his purpose. But it wasn't just his purpose uh, it was also his ordained calling. That's why Paul makes known this gospel, because it was his ordained calling. He saw that this was his role, uh, to make known to the Corinthians the gospel. And he establishes really an order here. In fact, it's very helpful to see uh, that he's literally saying the word make known. Because if we back up just a little bit, one chapter before to 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 36, we get a better picture of what Paul was doing as far as making it clear that this is his, his purpose, his ordained calling, his role to bring the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of God, that, that people, that sinners are and were being justified by the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. This was what he brought to the Corinthians. That which he received from the Lord Jesus himself. And so in verse 36 of chapter 14, uh, he says this. Read that with me. He says, was it from you that the word of God went forth? Or has it come to you only? He says this, verse 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him, look at that word, recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But verse 38 says, but if anyone does not recognize this, he is not Recognize. Now, that word recognize is actually, if you would guess in the Hebrew, a word that comes from the same root word of our word we find in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, made known or makes known. You can actually read it this way. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should know that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And then in verse 38, you could translate uh, this word this way to say, but if anyone does not Know this, he is not known. It's the same root word. And then he goes on in our passage and says, Now I make known the gospel, the gospel which I've already made known. The foundation has been laid. In fact, Paul made this clear earlier in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. In verses 10 and 11, he says, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So get this, the heart of the gospel is Christ living for us, Christ dying for us, Christ being raised for our justification. And Paul says any divergence from this gospel must be rejected. This is the gospel he had made known because it was his purpose. It was his ordained calling, but it wasn't just those things. Thirdly, the gospel, he makes known this gospel because it was Paul's answer. The gospel was Paul's answer to everything. In fact, 1 Corinthians, if you read the book, we, we label this as a problem church uh, because they are. They have several problems. The reason why it's 16 chapters long is because they had 16 chapters worth of problems that Paul needed addressing. And in every point and every time, Paul's answer for their problems was the gospel. Now, when I say answer, I don't think, 
I don't mean that Paul offered some simplistic, naive platitude or, or just a truism to every difficulty or challenge. What I do mean is that he consistently and precisely applied the gospel in all of its implications in the various struggles and various misunderstandings or situations that arose in the church at Corinth. So, for instance, there's a problem of prideful divisions. In verse 1, or in chapter 1, in verse 30 and 31 of, verse, of chapter 1, Paul responds to that problem of prideful divisions this way. He says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So there's prideful division at the church in Corinth. What is Paul's answer? The Paul's, Paul's answer is Christ died for you. He became your righteousness. He's become your sanctification. He's become your redemption. Where is there room for boasting? If anyone's to boast, boast in the Lord. In regards to the problem of unchecked immorality, a man has his father's wife in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Paul's response to that issue is found in verse 7 of chapter 5. Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate that festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's response to this unchecked immorality was, listen, Christ died an atoning death for you. Why did he do that? To remove the guilt of sin, but also the power of sin. You can't continue to live in sin. You can't continue to live in malice or in sexual immorality or evil. You can't continue to leave these ugly, wicked lives, but instead our lives together must be marked by sincerity and truth. So Paul goes on that more problems, lawsuits among Christians, unhealthy abuse of marriages, misuse of Christian liberty, disorder in the worship service, and now he's getting ready to answer the denial of the resurrection. To all of these, Paul applies a proper understanding of the gospel and its implication. So to all the problems facing Corinth and really to every church ever, Paul's answer is the gospel. So for us, friends, the gospel should frame our conversations. The gospel should determine our goals. It should redirect every aspect of our lives, not just individually, but together. It's no wonder that there is no greater threat to the church living in any age except to lose sight of the gospel. There's no greater need for any Christian in any age than this need to hold fast to the gospel. The gospel is not only Paul's purpose, it's not only his ordained calling, it wasn't just his answer as well. Paul makes known this gospel to the church at Corinth because it was his lens. I want you to catch this. How does he address the church at Corinth in verse 1? He addresses them as I make known to you brethren. Uh, he says, I make known to you Brothers, and that word can really be translated brothers and sisters. And now I remind you, brethren, of the gospel I preached to you. It's interesting, right? Look, think about this. Despite the, the prideful divisions, despite the, the unaddressed sexual immorality and wrongful thinking on so many subjects of the Christian faith, 
Paul addresses this largely Gentile church as brethren, emphasizing their inclusion into God's family. Now, anyone who's familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, it's not going to be surprised by that salutation. If you even look at the first chapter, for certain you won't be surprised by that. Verse 2 of chapter 1 says this, To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. Now, why would I feel compelled to bring this up? What's the point of... What's the importance of Paul calling these people his brethren? Well, number one, because it's in the text. And number two, because it's only in the text because of the gospel. The only reason that Paul addresses the Corinthians as brothers is because of the gospel. Without the gospel, if Paul had not been confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified state on the road to Damascus, if he had not been confronted by the reality of Jesus' sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead, then Paul would not be addressing the Corinthian church as brethren, but as Gentile dogs. That's the case. Far more likely. Sinners, certainly. In reality, he probably wouldn't even be addressing them at all. He would have no contact with them. But instead, he's addressing them and loving them in a way that is only possible because of the gospel. See, Paul had a major, major paradigm shift. It's given Paul a new lens for which to see all of the people in history. So despite this church's ongoing struggle with sin, the members of the church at Corinth were brothers and sisters in Christ. They were his brethren. And friends, that's what the gospel does. The gospel changes everything. The historical fact of the Son of God entering space and time and becoming a man, living a perfect life, dying for the sins of his people, being raised from the dead in a glorified body is world-shattering, super good news. And it's life-changing. It changes everything. So no longer are we judged by ethnicity or socioeconomic status, or even by our conduct. Instead, people are defined by their relation to Christ. Who we are in Christ uh, is defined by his person, who is our mediator, the only mediator between God and man, right? Uh, And so we're defined by his work, his perfect life, his keeping his commandments perfectly on behalf of his people. We're defined by his death, his cleansing death that removes the guilt of sin and the power of sin from our lives. We're defined by Christ because the gospel changes everything. So is certainly Paul's lens. And now we really want to dive into the text because now we see that Paul makes known this gospel. But look at now what the first two verses say again. Let's read verse 1 and really the first part of verse 2. It says, Now I, Paul, make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. See, this gospel that Paul preached is actually saving the Corinthians. If they fail to hold hold fast to this gospel, then it will be certainly of no use to them at all. So Paul reminds them that this gospel was the gospel that they had received. They had accepted it. They received it uh, in favor or with favor. It's really the opposite of rejecting it. This is faith. This is faith given by God. And it's that faith uh, that God uses in the gospel that really produces the faith. 
And so we see here, this is what the gospel does in the hearts of God's children. It's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we know that word of Christ to be really the gospel. We get this picture, if you will, of Paul arriving at Corinth and, and Paul proclaiming and preaching the gospel of Christ, uh, preaching about Christ dying for his people. And we see people in this group who reject this message, some who do not receive. But others do. They receive it. They accept it. They receive it with favor, and they believe it. Now Paul will go on to say that that, that which he actually delivered was what he had received, right? But he received it directly from Christ. And, and friends, remember the big context of this chapter. That has obvious implications uh, for the denial of the resurrection. They have believed in Christ. They believe that he was raised from the dead. They received this gospel proclaimed that Christ was resurrected from the dead. Therefore, to now claim that there was no resurrection from the dead was, in fact, to deny the gospel. That's why Paul not only points out that they have received it, past tense, right? This is the gospel the Corinthians had received. But secondly, this is the gospel the Corinthians have stood in. They have received it past tense at one time, but now... They, this is the gospel that they've also stood in. Uh, most translations probably have this in the present tense. I think the ESV says, in which you stand. But it's actually in what we call the perfect tense. It means it's a past action with a present effect. So this gospel that they received in the past, which they have stood on, continues to impact the way they cling to the gospel now. So it should continue to guide the way they're thinking and the way they form their lives together. You could say that they have taken a stand on the gospel. Many times when this word taking a stand or standing is used, uh, it denotes the way Paul uses it at least, uh, uh, mostly a standing against something. For example, when Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 5 verse 1, these words, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So, right, Paul says, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand against that yoke of slavery. He says the same thing to the Christians in Philippi in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, get this, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So Paul says you're standing firm in one spirit, in one mind. Why? So you might stand against your oppressors, your opponents. Or said another way, in Ephesians 4, 14, he says, we stand firm so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craft, uh, craftiness and deceitful schemes. So listen, in, in Christ, by receiving the gospel proclaimed by the Apostle Paul, the Corinthians had taken a, uh, the Ephesians had taken a stand against false philosophy, against the devil's schemes, against the destructive passions of their flesh. But this too, remember, it's all by grace. We do not stand in our own strength. We stand in the strength of the one who makes us stand. Paul explains this in this way in Romans 4.4. 4. He says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. 
and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Aren't you thankful that the Lord is able to make you stand? And he's the one who causes you to. So the Corinthians, they had received this gospel. The gospel he gave to them is one that had been received. They had, uh, they had made their stand on this gospel. But they were also, thirdly, this is the gospel to the Corinthians that they were being saved by. The Corinthians were being saved by this gospel. Again, the tense here is in the present tense. But it's, it's present passive. It's an act that is happening to the Corinthians by the gospel. Okay? It's happening now and now and now. Its, it's presence is continuous. The gospel is saving them. It is saving us. So how is it that we are able to be saved by the gospel? Well, I want to start with just allowing this to challenge some of the misconceptions we have about the gospel and the way we interact with it. First off, first off this means that the gospel is not based on me. The gospel is not based on me. It's not based on you. Uh, so me hearing the gospel and coming to a decision about the gospel is not what Paul's saying here. It's not based on even a decision. It's what Paul's saying. Uh, it's also not about being saved by the gospel and then moving on from the gospel to deeper spiritual truths that help me grow closer to Christ. It is, I was saved by the gospel. I am being saved by the gospel. And I will be led home by the same gospel. This gospel that is shaping me more and more into the image of Christ. This gospel that continues to challenge us, to shape us, and to grow us into the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so the gospel is the good news that Christ has saved, that Christ is saving, and that Christ will save his people. And so now let me attempt to to explain what I believe Paul is saying here. We've looked at the fact that Paul makes known this gospel and the reasons why he has. We, we make known that this was something the Corinthians had received. He specifically, directly brought this gospel to this church, and it was one they had received in, they have stood in, they were being saved by. But now Paul is going to, to continue on about this one gospel, and he's going to tell us some certain things that this gospel accomplishes. Look at this. He says, this one gospel is saving us because it is the power of God. This gospel is saving us because it's the power of God. Paul himself writes this. Talking about the gospel, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who, is, who are being saved, it is the power of God. That means in the, in the hands of the Spirit, the gospel applied to the heart of Christians saves them and transforms them. It produces in us humility as we consider our own helpless state. It produces in us uh, dependence as we realize that this is a work of God. It creates in us a hatred towards sin as we recognize the cost of sin at the cross. It produces in us a love for God, a love for each other, and, and perseverance. It continues to send us to the cross where we receive grace upon grace, moment by moment. For this reason, we need to learn the language of the gospel. We need to learn how to speak the gospel. We need to learn to speak the gospel to one another in such a way that is gracious and kind, but powerful, because the gospel is the power of God. And Paul goes on to say, he says, If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, 
unless you have believed in vain. Understand, he, he's really re-articulating, if that's a word, what he's already said in a slightly different way. What I just read and where we are now are parallel. So if he starts with, now I would remind you, brethren, of the gospel I made known to you, which you received, which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That is the word I preached to you, right? That, that's what saved you. And then he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul's saying something here that should be shocking. He states here unequivocally, there is one gospel, it's the one word I preached to you, and Christians will cling to this gospel tenaciously. This is one unified message that was preached, one gospel. It is the gospel proclaimed by the apostles, by the prophets, and one unified message that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. Now, something we have to hear this passage telling us is our second note under this one gospel is that those of us who understand the sovereignty of God, by the way, those of us who really wrestle and really grasp the sovereignty of God in this way, it might be something we may be challenged to hear and understand. But it's this truth, that only those who hold fast to this gospel will be saved. This one gospel will save only those who hold fast to it. Did you hear that right? Paul states this clearly. He says, unless you have believed in vain. Now, the word translated vain here is not reaching its goal without effect as though unless you believed as hard as you possibly can and it just simply didn't work out. That's not what Paul's saying here. In fact, there is a word that means exactly that thing that's used in verses 10 and 58 in this very chapter. So if that's what Paul was trying to convey to us, if that's what he was trying to say, he could use that very word. Instead, his point here is, unless you have believed to no purpose, unless your faith is misplaced, misguided, misused, not anchored in Christ. So, for instance... We find this word in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, where Paul writes, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. If you remember anything about Romans 13, in that context is he's talking about the government there, this use of the sword. Paul is obviously not saying as long as the sword is, is dull and ineffective. He's saying as long as the sword is used for its proper purpose, as long as the sword is used for the purpose it's supposed to be used for, uh, you, you need to, to trust that and not be afraid. So for instance, this passage in Romans 13.4, it, it's for administering justice by executing judgment, right? Uh, likewise, the purpose of belief in the gospel is trusting Christ in this gospel which he proclaimed. In the word I preach to you, hold fast to Christ and to hold fast to anything else is to misappropriate your ability to trust. So again, I say what we all need to hear is if you do not hold fast to this gospel, you will not be saved. The death of Christ will be of no benefit to those who demonstrate a temporary faith that's not rooted in the finished work of Christ Jesus. Like a plant that grows up in rocky soil or in a patch of weeds, Faith that is from a self-righteous and hard heart will not bear the fruit of salvation. 
Now, being that we are looking at this gospel that Paul preached, this one gospel, it is necessary to say something else on that, right? Uh, all who are truly saved will hold fast to this gospel. This one gospel will be held by all those who are truly saved. We need to know that. This one gospel Paul's been talking about, Paul's been preaching, proclaiming, making known, this one gospel will be held by all those who are truly saved. Think about this. The very nature of the gospel demands the final word on this particular matter. The gospel, the good news, is what Christ has done. The gospel is that God has redeemed sinners. So we who were enemies of God have been forgiven and now adopted into his family through the perfect life and the atoning death of Jesus, his son. And we need to hear the words of the cross here, right? It is finished. We Christians, those of us who are truly saved, will hold fast to the gospel. But we must be honest with ourselves and hear Paul's warning for exactly what it is. Because we hear this warning and it ought to really produce in us greater faith. It ought to cause us to cling even more tenaciously to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians, listen, if I can leave you with one final point, it would be this. You will hold fast because you are held fast. You will hold fast to this gospel but the only reason you really will hold fast to this gospel is because you are held fast by a great, great Savior. So I'm going to close really with just the words of Christ here from John chapter 10. Words we should know pretty well. Verses 27 to 29. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, nor will anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Church family, I pray that this would be the gospel that you hold fast to, and you would understand that the only reason we hold fast to this gospel is because we're held by a great Savior. Let me pray for you if I can. Father, we thank you for this beautiful gospel message. We thank you, Lord, as we'll Lord, we'll see next week the content of this gospel message. But, Lord, it's wonderful to sit back and, and be reminded that really the gospel is the answer um, to every issue we have. And Father, there is nothing that is we go through as Christians in the Christian life that should be divorced from the gospel. Uh, so, Lord, help us to see that in that particular lens, to see through a gospel lens and to have gospel answers. Lord, we also pray that we would not... Lord, um, we would not stray from this gospel, that you would remind us that this is the gospel we receive, that, Lord, we would hold fast to it, we would rest in it, we would stand in it, uh, we would stand against our opponents. Lord, ultimately, we, we trust you as the one who saved us, that you will cause us to stand and hold firm to this gospel. Lord, I pray for our wonderful, beautiful church family, and I pray your abundant blessings on them. I pray that they'd be encouraged to live and and stronger faith of the gospel because you hold them fast. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, church. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you sometime Sunday, Lord willing.